We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Breaking down more of NFL free agency. That's what we're talking about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find my newsletter at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his fantastic work at Rotoviz. Sean, in our last episode, in a true testament to the fact that any reaction right now to free agency is probably premature, we talked quite a bit about Devin Singletary to the Bills. You made the contrarian case, as you called it, that that landing spot was better for Devin Singletary and worse for Antonio Gibson because of sort of what the alternatives would be. Now that he's completely changed his mind and signed back with Washington, apparently because he didn't have any offer from them, but then they made him the same offer that Buffalo made, and that was enough to get him to stick around. I get it from a you know a lifestyle perspective. He's been living there, but... I don't know how you pick Washington over Buffalo from a football perspective at the same dollar value. But now that he has flipped his his decision, let's start there. Is it better for Antonio Gibson and worse for Devin Singletary? Well, the first thing is that we're obviously talking about this because the Deshaun Watson saga has created an environment in which no free agent signings are occurring. And so we have plenty of time to talk about this uh, sort of absurd situation here or not absurd. It's a great situation for McKissick. It's a little bit odd because it's one of those where your friend, your family, what have you is like, Oh, we, you know, we weren't interested in you, but, but now we see that you've undervalued yourself. Sure. <laughs> Come on back. We, we didn't realize you were worth that little. And so it, it's great to see. We just kind of joking aside. It's great to see because this human element and wanting to be with your teammates, wanting to play for the Washington Commanders, this is obviously a choice based on, you know, wanting to be with your guys. And you'd love to see this, right? A player who wants to play with his friends, wants to win with the organization that gave him the chance, is not just looking to kind of hop on the Josh Allen bandwagon like we see with these players who want to go with, play with Tom Brady in tampa now that's not necessarily a bad thing either it's, it's certainly fine for professionals and for free agents to go uh, and get a chance to win but i think it's cool here to see mckissick go back i don't know that for him it's a necessarily worse situation i think that he has the potential to get more volume in washington obviously you're not going to win nearly as many games because washington is going to be a bad team is is kind of our thesis the other day they're still going to have carson wentz he's going to take some of these touches from antonio gibson 
I don't know that it hurts Gibson that much. We had some reports come out saying that even before McKissick departed, that part of the plan in Washington was to get Antonio Gibson more involved as a receiver. One of the things that we saw in his rookie season is he had this flukily high green zone touchdown rate, and that really made him look like a dynamic rusher. I'm not saying that he's not. I mean, you're talking about a guy with you know, 225 pounds, elite speed. He can break some plays into the open. But some of the sort of intangibles or the intuitive elements of being a running back that we'd like to see go and be a Dalvin Cook or be an Alvin Kamara probably aren't there. And I think that includes the receiving side. Now, in his second year, it flips, and he's more efficient as a receiver than as a rusher. But one of the things that I noted in an article that I spent a lot of time on, had a lot of fun with, and will never see the light of day because McKissick went back, talking about how Jarrett Patterson's numbers actually basically identical to Gibson in the sample that he got last year. Now, we know that's much smaller, and so you're not necessarily saying, oh, you know, he played on a handful of plays and exactly the same, so he's the same player. That's not true, but it does stand out a little bit that the guys were so similar. I think that this perhaps could help Antonio Gibson, because now I do think that he's the guy. I don't think that makes sense now for them to bring in another back to be sort of a big back to siphon off some of these other touches. Gibson, I think, in a best-case scenario, is a little bit like Jonathan Taylor, where there are no low-value touches, because any time he touches the ball, he should be able to go all the way at that size and with that speed. And we saw him break some good runs last year. The question is, you know, can he ever get to that point where he's breaking these 60 and 70 yard touchdown runs and or with the Washington offense is back to making him viable. You know, we saw last year with the Carson Wentz offense that they really leaned on the backs. And you think that Washington will probably do that too. But in terms of generating all those short yardage touches that Jonathan Taylor got last year, part of that was because he was just so heroically good between the twenties there are just very few backs that can carry an offense to the point where then they put themselves in position to score later on in the drive. I don't know that Antonio Gibson is to that level. I agree with that ton. And it actually brings to mind another free agent back. We we're talking about on ship chasing last night. James Conner has risen now in drafts to where he's not quite to Antonio Gibson's level. But as we were talking about Conner, we got a question about ranking Gibson Dobbins, who you've, mentioned on the show you're excited about from a, especially from a talent perspective acres aaron jones who we were talking about uh over on ship chasing a decent amount and i still think has plenty of upside i mean i, I love aj Dillon, but he still has the receiving role rogers is back and the explosiveness and efficiency that we look for so aaron jones i'm actually kind of excited has been going in like the fourth round if you're going to start receiver 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 I, that's like a dead zone back i'll take in the fourth round and then Gibson. So uh, it was it was Connor, Akers, Dobbins, Jones, Gibson. And I think by ADP, Gibson goes the highest. And then like Akers, Dobbins, Jones are sort of in the range, you know, in similar range and Connor's moving up. And so it's kind of a question I think about like maybe Gibson will fall a little bit now that McKissick's back and Connor's moving up to approach that range. As I thought through that, personally, I thought that Akers was maybe the one I'm most worried about coming off you know, in Achilles where we did see him play a little in the, in the playoffs and maybe didn't have the same burst. I like the, the team situation. Certainly there's been a lot of running back value in the Rams offense for a number of years under Sean McVay now across a number of different backs. 
but I feel like he, there's a little risk there that if he doesn't necessarily regain his explosiveness, they at least have other competent backs that like he could potentially lose some of that work. It's one potential way 2022 could play out. I'm, I'm kind of with you on Dobbins. And as, I was a little bit more concerned about Gibson. And so as I was thinking through this, I felt like maybe Jones was the one that I felt like was the one that I would prefer. But I mean, Connor has a really interesting profile too. And another free agent riser that is worth considering do you have like an immediate thought on how you might jump i thought that was a really interesting group of backs because it's all guys that i think i am somewhat interested in but i can also see cases against as well and this is a tricky one because there are so many different elements at play one of which is the talent part that we talk about a lot and so i think you have to give jones a lot of credit as you're doing i think you have to give gibson this really wide range of outcomes because I think there's the potential that he continues to take a leap and we could start talking about him as having so much talent that we have to overlook some of the other problems structurally with their offense and with potentially losing some of those important touches to JD McKissick. And yeah, I don't really know that he's there yet, despite that size speed package. And despite some of the highlight plays that we see, I don't think that he's the guy every play where you really can put him in that group Dobbins, we haven't seen really that much at the NFL level either, but what we saw in college and what we saw in those flashes is someone who could be one of the most exciting small backs in the NFL for five or six years if he could stay healthy, right? And then you put him in this offense with the Ravens where, you know, you it cuts both ways. He's not going to catch a ton of passes, but in all likelihood, he's going to have wide open space to run through. And so when you're talking about a guy who has the potential, again, to create these highlight runs, to score from 60, 70 yards out, you know, a couple of times a season have these long runs and then also end up with a lot of 15 yard touchdown runs. I mean, that's one of the things that's helped Aaron Jones is this ability to get down in there and then score from distance. And then also I think the Ravens will use Dobbins and close and have just a bunch of touchdowns. And so you have this 20 touchdown upside. I think that part really helps him. I think he's a less expensive version of Derrick Henry, even though their sizes are so different. So people don't tend to think about him that way. The interesting thing here is that Connor, despite not having the speed, and that's in so many ways the crucial element of the running back's profile, because you do need to be able to run to daylight. One of the things with Derrick Henry is it's the big plays that make him a star, right? I mean, you can look at him as a big back and somebody who has a lot of touches, but he needs to break these big plays. And one of the things last year, he didn't have as many of those. And it was really just this epic workload. And that epic workload is just so rare. And even for someone like Henry, probably not the reason that he got injured last year, but not necessarily what you're looking for. I mean, you need to be able to have those big plays and create the rushing value on a, a little bit more realistic workload. But with Connor, I think the talent element is different where it's not speed-based, but he has that intuitive ability as a runner in the short yardage. I just think that the Cardinals are going to score a ton of points. And then, I mean, he's such a good receiver. And most receivers need to have that quickness, need to have the agility. We don't see that from him. But again, he's an intuitive receiver. He's got great hands, which always helps, right? Your quarterback isn't as reluctant to throw it to you. I mean, Leonard Fournette is not a good receiving back, but just the fact that Tom Brady felt like he was going to catch the ball meant that he got a ton of targets. I mean, Connor is going to as well. The Cardinals, for all their weaknesses, they have managed to create some space at the second level. Once Connor gets into there, when you're running through that, you know, you can run fast or slow. If there are no defenders around you, you're, you're going to do all right. And so those are the guys that I really like. I mean, Jones has this tricky element where 
AJ Dillon is just so good. And so that's one of the things we talked about a little bit on the previous show on why I said it was contrarian. I think that if you are Gibson or Singletary, you actually want a guy, even if it's a receiving back who is good, but isn't going to threaten you. I mean, AJ Dillon is so good that it's going to push for, you know, the 60 40 kind of split. One of the other things I put in that article was just looking at how the, the receiving numbers for Gibson were a lot better when McKissick was out and the receiving numbers for Singletary were a lot better when Zach Moss was out. And so that leads you to believe, okay, this receiving back really does matter. And it, and he does, but at the same time, these teams are going to put somebody in there. So really it's more relevant what happens in season. If the number two gets hurt, there's there's just going to be a number two. So I don't think that element preseason is a, is as important as people think. What matters is do you get lucky and have your backup get knocked out for a stretch in season, whoever that backup is, and then do you take advantage and score a lot of points? Yeah, and and so that's part of, I think, what I like about Jones. I mean, Dylan has been a workhorse since college. We've talked about how that is a skill. I mean, just to, to me, doesn't really, this young into his career profiles a guy who's, you know, particularly likely to get hurt. Not that that's really easy to predict in any kind of way, but Jones, when Dylan is in, I think still has that three touchdown game upside, right? He might have more floor on a weekly basis. I'm not really that concerned about floor with running backs. I'm usually just sort of targeting the upside. The the way that Jones can score his three touchdowns, you know, he had that one game last year where he had three receiving TDs. There were all these sprint out plays. He's caught, you know, on the little wheel routes and the little corner routes that they have him run out and he gets lost you know, as the defense is paying so much attention to Devonte Adams, he'll catch a pass 20 yards downfield and actually get those running back air yards. We love he's caught TDs that way. Even if Dylan gets a lot of the goal line touches, Aaron Jones is still going to have touchdown potential because of the player he is and because of the, the chunk plays. You said he can score from 15 yards out on, on the ground as well. And so I think he still has that sort of, you know, certainly point scoring ceiling. And then he also has, as you just described, like it's not a great thing to have AJ Dylan there and be so good, but if he were to miss time, that that is a situation where Aaron Jones would, for a stretch, be a top five back. And so, you know, we know the Packers are going to score points. We know they're going to generate running back high value touches and, and running back uh, production, fantasy production overall. So, yeah, he's interesting. It, 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 I'm, I'm catching from you that if we were to rank this, it'd probably be something like Dobbins. And Connor and Jones sort of in the same mix. I didn't really know what to do with Connor. A little bit injury prone, a little bit older than some of these other backs. And yet, I completely agree with you about all the team stuff. We talked about it even before free agency that it made a lot of sense for them to sort of let Edmonds walk and keep Connor based on 2021 results, which teams tend to do. That's sort of the way we were reading the tea leaves was they're going to look back and say, look, Evans is a guy who got hurt. And when he got hurt, Connor could do everything. He We originally just had him in the Kenyon Drake role and he was scoring the touchdowns. Which, by the way, go back to last offseason, that was sort of the upside scenario we're talking about. Maybe Connor can score all these TDs that Kenyon Drake used to get. He was getting that. And then Edmonds gets hurt. He starts to get the receiving work as well. He gets everything. You know, we talked about, like, you know, Benjamin is an interesting backup. And certainly if Connor were to get hurt, that may be the case. And, and perhaps he'll have a little bit more standalone value going forward. But... Certainly the way Arizona used Connor last year suggests there's a scenario where they're using him as a 90% snap back, which maybe he won't hold up to that role, but that would be very valuable with the ways that Arizona can generate running back points as well. So it seems like we're kind of saying something like Dobbins, Connor and Jones, and then 
you didn't really mention get you mentioned get you were a little bit down on Gibson. Gibson's going higher than any of these guys. I, I I kind of felt wrong to have him lower. I was definitely on him last year, but I feel the same way. I don't know that we know that he has that type of explosiveness and efficiency. And so I don't know that he's the guy that I would target ahead of any of those other three. You didn't really mention Akers there though, but some concerns. Yeah, one of the things that can be nice in these situations at least from a drafting perspective, maybe if you're doing rankings and, and you need to have this answer for listeners and readers who really do want those guys, but want to know, you know kind of which one they could pick. But I mean, Gibson and Akers are just going to be too expensive to draft. And so I don't think that you have to figure out exactly how you want to play them because the answer is basically you're going to never play them. But Akers, uh, there's a real concern there with... Does he get the explosiveness back? Was he actually that explosive to start with? Because again, we're kind of in this situation where the Rams offense likely made him look pretty decent. He came in as this amazing recruit to college and then was very good, but not a superstar in college. And so I don't know that we're necessarily seeing Akers as a superstar. Some of the things with him being young and being in this team that we expect to score a lot of points, I think has boosted his price. And, and those things do matter. And those things should boost your price. But I think it boosted his price to, to a spot where now he's under a lot of pressure to be perfect, to be healthy, to be kind of the best version of himself. When we look at, you know, what are the different possible outcomes? I think that's going to be tough to do. I still do think there's some pressure behind him in terms of there being decent players, you know, who are going to siphon some snaps. Yeah, I love I love the way you broke that down because the hard thing I've been having in in my mind, I guess, and probably some of the listeners are as well, is Dobbins is coming back from a similar serious injury as well. Although his was knee, right? It was Edwards who had the Achilles for the Ravens, if I'm not mistaken. Dobbins had the ACL. Yeah, you're nodding it <laughs> for the for the people listening. Sean's, Sean's nodding to to help me remember. Acres obviously Achilles, and I think is a little bit more concerning. But the way that you just put that, the way that I just heard that, or at least made me, and, and potentially for, for listeners that were having sort of having the same thought about Akers Dobbins both coming back from major injuries, was awesome. Because you're right, Dobbins was the better prospect. We liked him more from a talent perspective. There was a lot of people who loved Akers, and Akers went very high in the draft. And there was a lot of talk about how he didn't get a lot of, he didn't get very good blocking at Florida State, and he was good despite the blocking metrics. But Dobbins looked like a better prospect if you were reading Rotoviz in that offseason. And so, you know, a lot of people love to say running back talent doesn't matter. This is a very good example of a scenario where we're talking about, and you just said so well, that we maybe already had less certainty about Akers' elite upside is maybe the way to say it. Not necessarily concerns that he could be good, but less certainty that he could be very, very good than Dobbins, who had that more in his profile in college from a talent perspective and showed it with Baltimore with an like some really explosive plays early on in his career. And so when you're starting from that point where I was talking about going back and keeping in mind the prospect profile, when you're starting from that point in your acres and you now have to come back from an injury, it's a different probabilistic equation. Now there's, there's a more concern about, whether or not he can get all the way back and what would he even be getting back to? We don't know. And so it's those types of kind of fine grains sometimes that are leading to different opinions on somewhat similar players. We all, I mean, I often, I'm sure you often get these questions that are like, 
well, you're saying you like Dobbins, but not Akers. They seem like the exact same thing to me. Why are they different? And sometimes it's really hard to sort of parse the difference, but I think you did it really, really well there where it's like, well, we already had Dobbins a nudge higher prior in terms of what his skill level was and what that could mean. Then you can also add in the Achilles and knee stuff where guys tend to, we don't know for sure. All the more recent data is suggesting that Achilles might not be the death now. Certainly we have a, a good track record of, of guys coming back from ACLs and being explosive. So that's maybe just another little difference, what they're coming back from. And then you have, yeah, so just recalibrating that in terms of their probabilistic outcomes. You ha- you also have price, though, factored in as well, as people are, are kind of paying up a little more for Acres' situation as opposed to Dobbins. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's I, I, I just, I, I always get excited when, when things are crystallized in my head, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's sometimes hard, right, to, to, to pinpoint it. But I think that you said that so well. And I think it brings up a great point in terms of how we want to play these drafts out tactically and how we don't want to get so locked in to a structure that we do things that are kind of weird, right? Now, one of the things that you mentioned there, Acres, there's a difference with the Achilles of being back and being 100% explosive. I, I do think that how quickly Acres got back probably is a good sign too about him being able to regain that explosiveness although we don't know for sure some people are probably thinking well it's a little bit weird because you know Dobbins and Gus Edwards haven't come back from their ACL tears as quickly and so you know why would you be more optimistic about them there's a little bit of that element to it but again until we do know for sure that Dobbins and then whoever's with him I guess I'm not convinced that Gus Edwards will be the backup you and I have been kind of arguing for Ronald Jones as a good fit there but however that kind of plays out, you know, there is uncertainty. So that does have to come into play. But one of the things, and, and Michael Dubner has been doing some really cool things on with the best ball tools and how we want to play that out. Not surprisingly, a lot of it goes back to this idea of avoiding running backs in the dead zone. The results there are just so striking. And Ben obviously is the person who illuminated that for the readers and the community i mean you're not surprised by that but at the same time we have this element where if you're looking at the third and fourth rounds or you're looking at the second and fourth rounds and you have acres at two and dobbins at four or two and three and you have very different wide receivers in terms of the level that you have there in round two versus the level you have in round three and four what have you even though the data is so clear that you want to avoid the running back dead zone, it would be absolutely absurd to draft in such a way in which you take a lower rated wide receiver on your own board and, and a lower rated running back on your own board, because right. that's what you'd be doing yeah. it, just in order to avoid the dead zone. So I mean, I don't think listeners are necessarily going to do that, but we do want to make sure we think through and understand that, look, I mean, you want to get the highest rated players in terms of your own rankings. Yeah. And we've, and real quick, you mentioned Edwards also had the ACL. The, the Ravens running back who had the Achilles was Justice Hill, who probably doesn't matter to anyone as much as he mattered to me. But I, that's, the, that's the guy that I uh, was a part of the Ravens equation in my head, but maybe not for, for most other people. And, and, and yours too, I think, Sean, but maybe not because I kind of stole my love for him from you, but maybe not for for most. They're like, who are you talking about on the Ravens who had an Achilles? Like, I don't remember a single player on that team that did. The way you said that is great. And and we've talked about the dead zone and actually targeting 
facts there now as as ADP is shifting. And one of the really interesting things, you know, I'm going to call back to our ship chasing last night again. We Pete mentioned Pete Overzet, who we had obviously on our show just recently, mentioned how the fourth round is just this round we love to target receivers on. But like as I was thinking about that and a comment I made on that show last night was especially with guys like Aaron Jones going in the fourth round now. I mean, we're de- especially early this year. I don't know that it'll continue, but I think it might continue into August. I think this might be a long-term shift because of the fact that the dead zone stuff has become more mainstream and more understood where some of these backs that would have gone in the second round five years ago are maybe now going in the fourth. Now the flip of that is that now the third round becomes sort of last year's fourth round for wide receivers And so to your point about how big the wide receiver disparity can be in those ranges, especially in the second round, these top, top receivers that we used to be able to get in the fourth round that were kind of the end of like sort of the elite group, maybe there's somewhere where there's a small branch in the wide receiver groups. We're still targeting them in the fifth and the sixth and the seventh round at at the wide receiver position. But there's certainly a point where there's some tier breaks in those ranges. I'm wondering if in 2022, those tier breaks are going to creep up a little bit and we're going to want, you know, to make sure we get that receiver in the second and the third and not necessarily have to take that receiver in the fourth, which used to be a really lucrative round. I think anyone that's really exciting might start to creep into the back of the third, basically just based on the way that running backs are being viewed differently. And so then as you put it, put taking a running back in the second and a receiver in the fourth, Flipping that and getting another one of those really good receivers in the second, maybe before that little mini tier break at receiver and still getting a running back in the fourth. That's probably in the same group as some of these second round running backs, but is going in the fourth because of essentially this knowledge now that at a certain point we want to not be taking running backs because of the dead zone and everything. If I can get a second round running back in the fourth round, that doesn't make him a dead zone running back, right? Yeah, and if you took a running back in the first round as sort of as your anchor running back, then you don't need to necessarily worry about it either way. It doesn't mean that you can't if you love somebody. I mean, we took DeAndre Swift in some drafts last year where we did take a Jonathan Taylor earlier, and that you know more or less worked out until obviously Swift got hurt at the end there. But you don't have to. At the same time, if you started off and you were thinking, okay, one of the things that worked out very well last year, and again, some of these things are going to differ a little bit year to year, and it's going to be somewhat unlikely that the – superstar from that year slides into early round two because of weirdness in the draft season like taylor did in many drafts and in many formats last year but if you're going to go wide receiver running back which is a viable way to play it it's traditionally been less successful in terms of win rate than running back wide receiver but we see what these wide receivers are doing now we're pretty confident with some of those guys and that also is going to push some guys into round two so you're thinking okay wide receiver running back have the anchor running back and then I wait for a long time. Well, in that case, you know, we might be pushed into a situation where, you know, you start three wide receivers, take a running back. That hasn't historically been super successful, but you do have to look again about what your own rankings are and how you can maximize getting the most players that you have ranked in certain areas with your structure and with an overall structure, the still wide receiver head to win your league. Hey, RotoViz fans, this is Dave Cabin from the RotoViz Fantasy Football Podcast, taking a minute to let you know that as a loyal RotoViz listener, you can get 10% off a one year subscription when you use the promo code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. It gives you full access to all of our content and tools. And again, that's RVRADIO2022 at checkout 
for 10% off a one-year Rotovia subscription. Enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And if you believe what I just said, and you don't necessarily have to believe it, but if you believe what I just said about running backs being viewed differently, and there's at least logic behind it, we've definitely seen across the entire fantasy content landscape a lot more respect and, and discussion around this concept of the running back dead zone, which you know you gave me credit for, but obviously just builds off the original zero RB stuff. If you do believe that, then you would the next the, the logical end to that is that you would be okay with the fact that what you just said, three receivers and taking a running back around four has not had traditionally good historical hit rates because you're viewing the 2022 landscape as different than every other year that's come prior, essentially. You're you're making a decision that things have shifted such that I'm gonna analyze this differently. I'm gonna analyze the data differently. I'm basically believing I'm taking a second round running back in the fourth round, which that hasn't had as bad of historical hit rates to take, you know, receiver, running back, receiver, receiver. But now you're going receiver, 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 running back. If you're taking the same type of running back, obviously that's not a guarantee, but you, you got, and this, this may all be moot because probably now that we're sitting here talking about it and I'm thinking about it, JK Dobbins and Aaron Jones and those guys will probably be going by the early third in the early third by August because running backs always get pushed up. But yeah, I mean, we were taking Swift last year in that range. And like you said, in the, we did do some receiver, 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 running back drafts where Swift was our our draft, our one running back. So the historical data, I mean, that's because we both had Swift in the top 10. You, again, you talked to me into that one again. I'm just going to keep being clear about that. But when we did our, our 2022 look ahead rankings, I remember you having Swift in the top, I think top three was, was like your big surprise. And, uh, you know, pretty much he's right there. So absolutely crushed that. But that was basically what we were saying. And, and what you were saying was that Swift is a second round running back going in the fourth round. And so we're not going to worry so much about historical data points 
because of what you said, our, our individual rankings suggest that this isn't a fourth round running back. And so, you know, it's just one, one example of a way that like the historical data is definitely helpful and it's, it's a template and it's, it's important to know it, but it's okay to, to diverge from it and be willing to say that I, I think this year is different because I think these trends are shifting for these reasons. I mean, we make those types of decisions all the time. Right. And I think another way to look at it, you mentioned there Swift and you mentioned our kind of look ahead and that that exercise was very helpful to us in terms of trying to decide how much we were willing to pay. And if we were willing to break structure for a certain player, one of the things you're kind of looking to do with these drafts is the same thing that you're looking to do with a dynasty team is to say, well, what will be the powerhouse team next year? Or what will be the powerhouse team at the end of the year, but it's almost the same question, right? Because the teams that we expect to be powerhouses next year in Dynasty are also the teams that tend to be the powerhouses once you hit the fantasy playoffs. And so if you're thinking to yourself, okay, this running back is someone I would want for the following year in Dynasty, and the price isn't out of control, then you want to look at that. And that's one of the reasons why these dead zone backs have traditionally not been good plays, because there weren't the scenarios and you can go through and look and I mean, it seems like an exaggeration to say that, but you can pull up, you know, the road of his best ball win rate explorer and look at all the backs drafted in those ranges over this time period from you know 2015 to 2019, 2015 to 2021, however you want to look at it and say, those were not guys where you were going to have this powerhouse team with them, even if things broke relatively well. I mean, Mark Ingram is sort of the one player who, thwarted that for a number of years on some different teams and you know we look at it now and you know I kind of think to myself well I wouldn't be surprised if Josh Jacobs and David Montgomery were the kinds of players who thwarted that a little bit over a couple year span now but even then you're talking about thwarting it to where their win rates are in that eight nine range and they don't kill you you're not thinking about it in terms of, okay, these guys are going to have a 20% win rate and I won the league because I made that pick now Again, we don't know for sure. It's, it's possible that they actually could do it, but that is a much lower percentage type of play than other things that you can do structurally. And yeah. you, you don't want to be, and the whole reason the structure works is because you are putting everything in your favor in terms of how these scenarios will break. And and, and maximizing the potential to hit on those 20% players. I mean, like, as you say that, the, I, I can't help but think about what we always talk about, the you know, sort of small miss, big hit idea. Mark Ingram, all those years, very good, but like wasn't a big hit necessarily, more or less a small hit. And there was big miss potential there too, to take a running back with his profile in those ranges. It panned out there. I mean, even if you say a guy's a big, a big miss, small hit type of pick, you can have the small hit. Like, it, like no one's saying that can't happen. There's going to be players with that type of profile that hit the small hit side. And then we sit here and we talk about him years later and we're like, you know, Mark Ingram kind of thwarted that, but to your point over a, over a larger stretch, when we're looking at these different players and trying to analyze them and things, I would, I mean, and maybe not knowing what we know, knowing how good Mark Ingram was in those situations, but I would suggest just sort of, that was probably close to his, top outcome and stuff. And so sort of knowing that that was this top outcome, you know, broadly, like these were his ranges of outcomes, I would still probably in those scenarios want to be taking a receiver who I think had 20% win rate potential, had this big, big hit potential, which typically that's sort of the the reason for these dead zone 
win rate issues with running backs is a lot of those running backs don't have the ceilings and the alternatives you can take in those ranges do. We just saw Cooper Cup be the superstar out of this range, right? We've seen that so many times with different receivers. We've seen tight ends in that range. We've seen, you know, I guess early quarterbacks be really, really good. Maybe that's not as as frequent, but it's certainly a multi-layered discussion where, yeah, sometimes you can get a good running back of that type, but and, and kind of like you're mentioning, it's still probably a bad pick, but you go through and try to think of a like a powerhouse team. You'd rather have a Josh Allen or a Patrick Mahomes than a running back who's not going to really do anything for you and can be replaced as the season goes along by you know, whichever running back is the flavor of the week on the waiver wire. Yeah, you're just you're looking for ceiling in every pick almost, right? And I mean, at least every pick early. I mean, I, I know I am. In that range, it's just like I'm getting one less shot to find that difference-making player. You can still thread that needle if your other shots at a difference making player all hit. And, and some people do. Great. You picked all the, the right players. But like we're trying to maximize our chance for, for 20% type players. So don't take the ones that don't have that chance. And since you're going to get hit by injuries, I mean, you, you need as many chances as you can to have that elite team there at the end. I mean, you do tend to see it's the healthier teams that show up on the final leaderboards. But even with that, I mean, you have to have those upside plays in order to be in that group. Then we talked about McKissick perhaps being okay for Singletary because it didn't, you know, take half of his workload again. Maybe the most straightforward signing in all of free agency was going to be Raheem Mostert going to the Dolphins. So he lands there on top of Chase Edmonds. Is there an element where that could be good for Edmonds in the same way where I mean, Mostert is not a star. He's someone who has been very good in the system. He's posted these crazy on-field speed numbers. And yet, I mean, we wouldn't expect him to be a workhorse. He's probably one of the most likely guys to get injured and actually open up a big workload for Chase Edmonds. At the same time, I mean, he could take a pretty decent chunk if both of them stay healthy for the first five or six weeks, so you maybe get off to a pretty slow start with Edmonds if he's one of your starting running backs. Yeah, I that's a really interesting one. We were talking about that last night as well and sort of like where they might land in ADP and trying to think through it. I don't think I love what it means for Edmonds, but I do like it for the reasons you said in the sense that they certainly, as their secondary back, didn't add someone who's going to take a ton of touches. I mean, if you had to predict who's going to take them, you know, the most touches for the Dolphins this year, it's very clearly Edmonds right now, right? Like Mostert, along with being the one who's most likely to get hurt, is also probably the free agent signing who's, you know, most likely to have a limited workload when healthy as well because of the ways that he's used. He's kind of an explosive play guy. Certainly he'll have some, you know, 10-plus carry games, but – there's not a lot of expectation, I would say, at his age. And I think he's like 30 now, right? I mean, he's always been a he was a late, much later breakout to, until his you know NFL relevancy. At his age and and his profile, he's going to be a guy who is going to probably be just a change of pace, big hit type of you know type of option, edge rut, you know, edge runner when they when they want to run these stretch plays and things and trying to trying to get to space 
he'll definitely factor into the early down equation, but I think Emmons still has to factor into the early down equation. Like there could have been other guys that could have been looked like the clearer first and second down backs. And then Emmons is now in this third down back role, basically. And, you know, Emmons contract was solid. It wasn't bad or anything, but it wasn't massive. I mean, by running back standards, it was pretty comfortable, but it was about what Kenyon Drake got last year from the Raiders to be basically a secondary back. And, you know, so that confused some people because of the numbers. I mean, there's an element of it when you when you sign someone in free agency, if you like the talent, you might have to overpay a little bit. And they certainly didn't like give him so much that it was a massive overpay. I mean, they gave him two years, 12 million, I think only six and a half guaranteed. That's that's comfortable running back money, but also like within the context of the Dolphins had money to spend, they wanted to dress running back and they got him early in free agency. Like, yeah, probably they would have liked to get him for two years, 10 million. They went, you know, they had to bump it up a little bit. I don't think it's like they're they're definitely I mean that that could be third down back money, basically is what I'm trying to say. But adding Mostert, I think, means that Edmonds definitely factors into the early down equation some. And so it's it's good for Edmonds. My guess was that Edmonds probably winds up somewhere in this like seventh round range. I think I'd be a little bit interested there. And Mostert maybe in like the tenth or eleventh round range. I think I'd probably be interested there too. Like I don't think either of them gets like steamed up into the, the upper ranges. So we might have this discussion about which of them makes more sense as a zero RB back. It'll be interesting. If Evans is going later than that, if he's getting outside that really still prime wide receiver range, if he's getting to the eighth and the ninth in some drafts, I would definitely be interested. I don't think he will. I mean, I think it's more likely he's in the sixth. As, as I say, the seventh, I think it's more likely he's in the sixth or maybe even the fifth because people won't trust Mostert, which means I probably won't take Edmonds much just because of the receivers that are available. It'll be interesting because I guess I don't think that these signings completely eliminate them from drafting a back too. And so I would be pretty nervous selecting them until after the NFL draft, because I don't think that the upside is there either way to where you need to have some exposure before the draft. And so, whereas I think that a lot of times there's some value in hitting some of these that could go either direction and you're expecting the, the value to go up or the value to go down. For me, I probably would be, waiting these players out, but I probably won't have either of them unless they drop below kind of those prices that you mentioned. Yeah. I think that makes sense. And it's well put like Edmonds is not a guy that's going to, he's not a guy that's going to rise and then be a target at those prices. And I, I, you know, that's something that I think people get caught up with best ball stuff about who could rise, but would you want to take him at that higher price? Like I I don't want to take him almost in any scenario now that I know that Mostert's on the team, unless Mostert were to get hurt in the off season, I don't think I want to be taking Emmons higher than the seventh round in any scenario. And so I don't want to be, you know, trying to target him now, especially like you said, when there's additional risk that they could potentially draft it back. And certainly that might seem, that might seem a little bit unlikely to some people, but you have to look at the way that San Francisco's done things. They've had backs in place and still drafted two backs last year. It wouldn't surprise anyone if Mike McDaniel goes in, says, I'm going to draft two more backs, just like we always did in San Francisco. So um, I think that's really well put. And if they do pick one, then it'll likely be somebody who they feel really strongly fits their scheme. And so that back could have more impact than a middle or late round back on most teams where most teams are just trying to fill that depth chart out to make sure they have some bodies in there on day three. Then it's probably not relevant to the Chiefs. It may be... I mean, it's going to be relevant to the free agent market as a whole. But we discussed all of these old, slow, 
possession receivers that were being linked to Kansas City. What are your thoughts here? I mean, you've been you've been higher. I mean, obviously not outrageously high, but you've been higher than I have been on Allen Robinson. Where are you on Julio Jones? Oh, come on. I don't like old receivers now. No, no, no. <laughs> We're not suggesting that. I mean, I'm just, I have Allen Robinson off my board completely. But Julio Jones, I mean, there you're talking about somebody who, I don't know, in some ways it's harder to give up on Julio Jones because after Calvin Johnson, yeah. I mean, there are different types of players than like an Antonio Brown. I mean, Antonio Brown was even better. But I mean, Julio Jones has been the superstar. I mean, talking about legitimate freak score, just massive dominating players, you know, air yards, run after the catch. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was larger than life because of his size, speed, profile, and his way to just completely and totally take over games. The Titans have cut him, which suggests that that day is over. Yeah, but, I mean, the case for Julio Jones, and if you want, you know, I always break things down, targets per outrun and yards per target, sort of the ability to earn the target once you're in a route, and then what do you do after that target is earned? And if you want any evidence that yards per target is still worth paying some attention to, because the very popular thing now in 2022 is to say that yards per target is a terrible stat. Go look at Julio Jones' game log. Go to pro or uh, career season log. Go 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 to Pro Football Reference. Go look at it. Go look at his career yards per targets. They've been over nine every single year of his career, except for 2019, he was at 8.9. But the average for wide receivers typically in this eight range, just above eight. So he's been at nine plus. He's had multiple seasons over ten. Those are like back in the day when I would use yards per target for projections. It was like really hard to project someone over ten yards per target because you knew that was going to regress. Julio Jones' career number is 9.7. So this is a player but because he earns air yards and because he creates after the catch with his size and his athleticism, even at this age, you know, he was still a 9.0 yards per target guy last year. The case for him is, yes, his targets per outrun have fallen off step by step over the last few years. He's He's gotten, I don't want to say necessarily worse, but just less able to earn this massive amount of volume per route. He used to be a high 20 percent range so 27 percent 29 percent targets per outrun guy he's now below 20 percent so more in this average range but even as he ages might still have that potential to create enough yardage after the catch create enough place now he's never been a big touchdown guy so after the target is earned his touchdown side might not be exciting but i've never understood why <laughs> i don't think anyone really can understand why it's obviously the big discussion point i don't see any reason why if he lands in a good spot he couldn't be an eight touchdown guy late in his career. I've never, again, understood with his size and athleticism why he's not that, but particularly his ability to earn yards per target. If he's in a role where he's running enough routes, is in a good enough offense where that efficiency doesn't crater, he's still going to be relevant, even if he's not earning a ton of targets and he's more of a number two into his twilight years, just because of the type of player he is. He's going to get downfield looks. He's going to be able to create some additional yards after the catch, even as he ages, just because he's big, you know, he's not easy to bring down. We see that with the bigger receivers. And so I can see the case at the same time, I'm not going to be chasing. It would have to be a really big discount at age 33 and things. The the, the reason I see Allen Robinson is different. And I've made this case before, obviously, but I, I, he's still 29 and he just had a season where it should have been in the middle of his prime where his targets per out run was way below any other year in his career. And I just have, told myself this narrative that maybe he was just literally like kind of quitting on the bears 
uh, on the franchise tag, didn't want anything to do with it. I think if Allen Robinson buzz starts, to, I mean, that's that was related to the fact that he was going in the eighth round in the early part of the offseason. Now, you know, I expected him to sign a decent deal and, and be somewhere. I think there's been enough talk about him, and especially if he were to sign the type of deal that I'm thinking of that I want to, to see for him from a fantasy value perspective, or you would want to see, you'd want to see a team commit to him, you know, a good number of, of years and money in those things. But that's what people are talking about, at least in, in the speculation I've seen that, that Robinson could get a lot of money, especially when they saw the Christian Kirk contracts and those things. I mean, I saw people saying, oh, Alan Robinson's going to get 40 million. I mean, I think those people are not really crediting enough how bad Robinson was last year. So it really is sort of all related to like what your actual perception of Robinson is. But when I immediately saw earlier this offseason, he's going eighth, ninth round. I was like, okay, the market's perception is pretty down. And there's this potential that he does land in a pretty solid situation with solid money investment in him. And at 29, I'm not buying that age 20, you know, his age 28 numbers were this decline that means that he's definitely done, especially because at like 26 and 27, he was really good. So yeah, I mean, the idea with Robinson would just be, it would have to be price related. He would have to be in a situation where it looks like he could be sort of back to being this alpha. I mean, I think Chicago was in a horrible situation for him because he had 250 target years. The ability to potentially dominate the targets would be the appeal. But if he does land in that, the way that I'm seeing people talk about it more in these recent months, my expectation is he jumps into like the fifth or sixth round. And then at that point, I'm not going to be taking him because I am actually really concerned about the things you are concerned about. There's that other side of his probabilistic range, which is maybe he is done. Maybe, you know, he didn't look good last year. Maybe it isn't this narrative that I've been telling that he was just sort of quitting on his team. And maybe it's the fact that he's just not that good anymore. And I typically am not going to be in on a 29 year old receiver. I just think at 29, there's still that potential. I mean, I'm looking at Julio Jones's, player page right now and at age 29 he had his second best yardage season of his career i mean the guy was still elite now alan robinson isn't julio but obviously that's that's not the complete decline phase yet typically so robinson's very very contingent my 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 uh interest in him is very very contingent on the market's perception of him yeah and i would mention here that blair andrews whom we mentioned quite frequently one of his wrong reads on bounce back wide receivers and kind of how that works. It, it's kind of an eye opener in terms of how infrequently chasing these players actually makes sense. That people are able to come back after they have down seasons. Now, again, you're mentioning price and the only time that you would take him is if you actually got a discount that would make that make sense. You mentioned pro football reference. We also have all of those numbers in the player stat explorer and you can kind of, Check them against some of these other advanced stats that we talk about on the show all the time. The other tool that we love, Ben, obviously is the Ceiling Signals tool, which has all of this great info that reflects a lot of the things that you do in your research. We have stats from the fantastic sports info solutions in there. And so you can go in and, and check out all of these types of things. And it's interesting because I, I had pulled up to kind of give myself context for this Tennessee and Chicago looking at these players for last season you mentioned that yards per target element and for any listeners who are interested in this kind of concept and obviously if you read ben you already are much of the way there but we're going to do a really cool show on this in the coming weeks so we'll break down for you even more 
kind of what we're looking at, you know, why some of the ideas that are out there probably don't exactly make sense, but it's not something where, you know, we're going after anybody else's approach. Just, we want to explain kind of how we're looking at it, but you mentioned yards per target and it is really cool because Julio Jones does come in at nine. Obviously AJ Brown is a star. He is at 8.4 and his yards per route, obviously fantastic. He's drawing targets at a much higher rate. The contrast between Julio at nine and Allen Robinson at 6.1, very significant. Obviously, also Jarvis Landry down there at 6.7. Not a huge surprise necessarily with him being that underneath threat. And as you mentioned the other day, Jarvis Landry drawing targets at a much higher rate than a Julio Jones. But I mean, I if the Chiefs are going to draft or pick an old guy, I actually think that Julio is less washed up than some of these people are looking at. Yeah, I mean, and the numbers definitely suggest it. But the only other thing I will say, and God, I'm, I'm getting back to becoming an Allen Robinson apologist, is that 6.2 you mentioned was the other half of it. It's not just that his targets per out run cratered to a number that was below even his rookie season. He's never been that horrible at earning volume. He also was horrible after the target was earned. That was his second worst season ever, his he had one other season worse than that 6.2 yards per target. His career is at 7.5. He's definitely had some lower seasons and never really had massive yards per target ceilings. Like we, that's sort of why I was focused on the targets per outrun element is like Robinson from an efficiency perspective over the long history that we have of him looks like a guy, it can bounce around, but looks like a guy who's pretty average uh, sort of at best, not somebody that's going to add a ton of this yards per target upside that I was describing with Julio. So we'd want him to be able to earn a bunch of volume really is like, that's what makes him viable. It, he, that type of profile probably doesn't have first round wide receiver ceiling necessarily. Um, unless he scores a ton of TDs, like he did way back in his second season, he had 14 TDs, but it probably has third or fourth round wide receiver ceiling if he's earning 150 targets. But to your point, we may be way beyond that, but I do think it's interesting that also his yards per target last year was really bad. This is like another reason why I think that he just sort of wasn't trying because it doesn't make any sense at age 28 to be that bad all of a sudden at earning targets, which is the more stable number. Also that bad after the target. I mean, everything just completely cratered for him last year. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that at the same time. And one of the things that we do see and one of the reasons why older players are a bigger risk I think than fantasy managers sometimes are considering is that it's not necessarily a decline for players. It's a collapse. And so it's very possible that he has not gotten to that point, but especially when you look at the types of targets he had to get in the previous years where there's no separation and the bears are throwing it to him because they don't have other options, then, you know, that part of it worries me. The other part that, that worries me, or I think is at least interesting is, you know, we have this element with, efficiency and obviously efficiency bounces around and there are plenty of situations in which if you target less efficient players that you can really benefit from that because once the bounce back happens and, and this is one of the things that the elite dfs players are going to do within a season that you're going to be very effective at targeting these guys who were less efficient for a stretch and then come back but when you're looking at the big picture, one of the things that the Blair has seen as well, and it seems counterintuitive, but the guys who bounce back are the guys who actually had better fantasy point over expectation numbers in their collapse than the guys who were extremely inefficient. And so it'll just be interesting to see because yeah. no, this is really fun. Cause we, we always joke about this. We don't disagree enough. This has been a, I, I think it's fun, but I, 
I think you know this. I don't obviously disagree with anything you just said. I do think Allen Robinson has all of that risk. So my question to you becomes, what is the earliest round you could see yourself taking Allen Robinson in? Well, he's going to fall out of that range of like the seven, eight exciting types of players where you're looking to hit the next Debo Samuel, right? And you're looking to kind of take those rookies. And then once he falls through that, you're into that that 10, 11, 12 range where you have to hit those perfect zero RB options. And so from a roster construction perspective, and then you also have to get your Joe Burrow in that range. So I, I think that structurally, probably the earliest you could go after him would be in the, the round 13 type of range. And for the exact reasons that you mentioned, I mean, you could, I mean, he's not going to be in round 13, right? I mean, he's going to sign a contract from a team that thinks that he could be the guy. He's going to find his version of the Titans who just, you know, traded for Julio Jones. And they're like, nope, he was not cut him. And so we don't know that he's going to fail to that extent. And, and again, I, I mean, it's a little bit of an exaggeration to say that Julio failed. The main problem he's had is he can't stay healthy. But yeah, I, I mean, it's similar to the acres question where I, I don't have to really figure it out. Cause obviously it's just going to be a pretty big disconnect. Right between where I would take him and where he ends up going. Even you saying round 13, I know you well enough to know that, that, that what that actually would mean in practice is about round 16. So <laughs> at least we've gotten a solid a solid answer from you that Allen Robinson uh, would have to be somehow forgotten about on, or not showing up in the, in the queue for long enough and then reappear when you're on the clock in the 16th round. And now we know that Allen Robinson is going to be the 2022 Cooper Cup. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I would, if I see that type of upside. But yes, that's a that was that was a fun uh, conclusion to our sort of pointless Allen Robinson discussion because the reality is I'm probably not going to take him either. He's going to end up going in like the sixth round. What else do we got? Anything else that we should close with? Well, then we have college basketball going on march madness i think that is probably what the listeners are most excited in we have the jets signing multiple tight ends we have the Cardinals signing multiple tight ends instead of asking you about that i want to know who you are selecting as your final four and your national champion i did a few different brackets but i definitely took gonzaga in a bunch i took arizona in a bunch and then Kentucky, and then either Kansas or Auburn, sort of depending. My my strategy with the with the brackets because I'm in smaller pools, and and usually a, a group of the pool is not necessarily people that are going to be like reading into stuff and everything. Is that I'm getting contrarian and using game theory in the first several rounds, and then sort of comfortable just being pretty chalky towards the later rounds where there's all these big points because I've for a lot of years in, in some of these tournaments I've gotten out ahead in the early rounds and then had wished I had a chalkier final four essentially. So that's sort of what I've noticed for March madness brackets are, are so dependent on the, the actual contest that you're entering in. I would have been a, a lot more exciting with my picks. I think if I was in a much larger bracket, I, I some of the teams that I are like my sleeper teams that I had going kind of far, like UCLA having the elite eight and a couple I can't think of any other ones. <laughs> oh, LSU we talked about before. It was a fun Elite Eight team that I, I definitely have in at least a couple. How about you? I mean, we, we all know you're a Kansas guy. So other than Kansas winning, what, what else do you got? 
I am. I am. I grew up 45 minutes down the road from Lawrence. Both of my parents went there. And so you kind of grow up immersed in this KU basketball tradition. And that's a lot of fun with them having another number one seed. Obviously they're, sort of storyline their narrative in the bill self era is they dominate the big 12 conference in terms of regular season championships and the conference is good so that it is an amazing accomplishment they've had and then they underperform a little bit in the ncaa tournament but again when you're kansas and you do as well during the regular season the standards are so high that i mean you're basically gonna underperform there's no other way to go about it at that point but i am excited i do have kansas to the final four i usually have been I love the underdog and I love the crazy picks and there's not that much harm in doing that in your fun March Madness brackets. So I usually have something like a one, a three, a six, and a 10 in the final four. And you're mostly hoping that your final four team makes it through the first 48 hours this year. Yeah, that's the answer. worst when you lose a final four team on day one. <laughs> and so, yeah, this year it much, much chalkier because Kansas looks good. I live in Tucson and so I've got to go with, the University of Arizona, which has a very, very fun team, fast-paced, high-scoring, incredibly talented. The size that Arizona brings to the table with the athleticism is pretty crazy at the college level. They're a very, very fun team for people who haven't seen them because obviously a lot of their games come on after bed for people on the East Coast. Then Gonzaga, the best team by such a wide margin that it probably makes sense to go with them. So I do have a chalky final four, but then I had to go with Kansas over Arizona and then Kansas over Gonzaga. Who did you have in the Baylor, Kentucky region? Did you say that? Well, and this, I mean, this is maybe the most embarrassing thing to, to ever admit is that I did pick four number ones. So I don't, I don't care for that at all. Baylor is a good team. The thing that happened here is Kentucky is the team that you should obviously pick, but Kentucky's portion of the bracket actually had the most fun sleepers. And so I picked those teams to get it in, you know, in the three or four brackets, a variety of teams beating Kentucky. It's, I mean, if you're a Kansas fan, obviously you're picking against Kentucky and, and vice versa, right? For all of our Kentucky listeners, I'm sure they do not have Kansas winning the national championship. But there are some really cool lower seeds in that section. So I picked them through San Francisco. I had the, into the Elite Eight. And then you're looking at it and you're like, do you want to have San Francisco who's going to lose like in the first game? Or do you want to have Baylor in the final four? And so I, I kind of chickened out there. But yes, that that is my final. Hey, San Francisco and the Elite Eight's fun because Murray State's the other fun one there that a lot of people like to potentially win and then beat Kentucky. The, the San Francisco Murray State first round matchup should be really fun because those whoever wins will be. You're right. Kentucky's guaranteed uh, a good opponent in the second round and. Certainly, I'm not thrilled about that with me taking them, I think, in the final four in almost all my brackets, which is, I mean, I, I was kind of feeling the same way as you were, where I was like, I, I can see myself picking all the ones, but at a certain point, it's like, you got to take something other than all the ones. So I just took Kentucky at a bunch of them. I'm not, I'm not the, I don't have the Kansas uh, loyalty that you do. So I, I had no qualms about that. Do you have Murray State in doing any of your final fours? That That's a fun one. I don't, but, uh, I'm on Murray State over San Francisco, even though, like, if you look at Ken Palm, which is, like, one of the, obviously, premier sources, I they have uh, San Francisco as actually rated higher as the 10 seed. I'm not sure why I wound up on so much Murray State over them, but I, I like them both. But then I, especially because I had Kentucky winning. It, I love brackets. I mean, I also do an, an eliminator, and I also do one that's uh, – 
you pick six teams and there's um, seed value, like each game they win, you get that amount of points uh, of their actual seed. And there's like a multiplier element to it. And so you're encouraged to take these really high seeds because you can get 10 times as many points, you know, for, for each win. Got a lot of different balls in the air for the tournament. I'm very excited about it. It's a, it's a very fun time to, for anyone who's, wondering why we're closing with so much college basketball discussion. We are recording on Thursday morning, right? As the first games have tipped off. So as we get off of this, I'm going to go watch all these games. Yeah. So we're hoping for, as you mentioned before the show, some of the, the fun chatter on social media that these slow free agent signings that we've gotten for the NFL, that hopefully when they do come, they come during the break in the college basketball games over the next couple of days, we will still have plenty of free agent reactions for you on Rotoviz. I'm Sean Siegel. As always, with me is Ben Gretchen. You can follow at Yards Per Gretch. Make sure you subscribe to Stealing Signals. You will not regret it. It's absolutely fantastic. We've got some cool shows coming up for you in the near future, so make sure you subscribe to our feed to get those as soon as they come out. Leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Uh, If you kind of are are feeling in that direction, we always appreciate it. If you want to get a 10% discount to Rotoviz, use the coupon code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. Good luck to everyone and their favorite teams. Hopefully when you are listening to this, your teams are still alive. We'll chat with you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.